Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Trey German. And your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. So, Trey, you're back. I am. I've been on quite the adventure the past two weeks. Yep. Um, and for our listeners, Trey was on episode uh, 10. 10. Yep. Uh, cloudy IoT Future, something like that. IoT's Cloudy Future. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah, so I just uh, competed in what's billed as the world's toughest air race, uh, the Icarus Trophy. So if you're unfamiliar with that, which most people have never heard of this, um, I fly these things called powered paragliders, or they're sometimes referred to as paramotors. Uh, and I flew one of these things from uh, uh, Montana down to Nevada. Um, and, you know, it's basically... Uh, you know, uh, a lawnmower engine that you put on your back like a backpack (laughs) and, you know, a glorified bed sheet is kind of what I like to call it, but like a paraglider and you literally just run into the sky. It's, it's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, you were working on last time you work on this IOT device, right? That was supposed to help you paragliding, right? Sure. Yeah, I was. Um, and I've kind of continued to work on that and iterate, uh, and so at this point, I have kind of a, a packaged product, which uh, I think the last time that we talked, uh, it was still kind of a bare board. Mm-hmm. And so I've got one here. It's uh, it's a little black box about the size of uh, a box of matchsticks. And inside of this is a, uh, a Bluetooth microcontroller, uh, you know, a nine axis uh, sensor suite, plus a few other sensors, actually. I think there's... We've got three-axis accelerometer, gyroscope, magnetometer. Um, there is a barometer and a hygrometer as well. Uh, so uh, lots and lots of data you can get from this thing. And uh, basically what I was trying to do was actually put uh, sensors on the paraglider itself um, to, to instrument the wing. And to the best of my knowledge, um, no one has ever done this before. No one's actually put you know, wireless sensors up on, uh, you know, a wing like that because they have to be so small and lightweight and, mm-hmm. um, excuse me, it's a, those beers you guys have been feeding me. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, but I, I, you know, you put, a, uh, three of these sensors up on the wing. I use one in the middle kind of as a, a reference point, And then I have two on the, uh, tr- left and right trailing edges of the wing. Mm-hmm. And, um, by measuring the difference in the, um, angle of the the sensors, right, I can actually detect the pilot's control inputs. And that's really the special thing that uh, really hasn't been done before. Um, You know, measuring uh, the attitude of a wing or something like that or an airplane, right, people do that all the time. It's kind of uh, a standard piece of instrumentation. But, um, you know, with a paraglider, no one that I know of has ever been able to record uh, the control inputs that make the wing you know, change its attitude. And well, it's, so it's a, it's a bit more difficult to do that with yeah. a soft wing. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, you could, you know, potentially do it with like a, you know, a, a sprung potentiometer that, you know, kind of was like a yo-yo string or something like that, that, you know, you would pull down on the line and it would unwind the pot or something like that. But it's just not really, uh, you know, an elegant solution. It adds stuff that the pilot has to deal with by, um, by, placing some pouches on the wing and just sliding these sensors in. That's actually what I was about to ask is, is how is it attached to the wing? Sure, sure. And, and uh, that's a great question. I, uh, I've kind of gone through a couple different ideas and um, settled on these like little um, pouches that are made from uh, the same material as the glider. 
uh, and they're adhesive and they've got like a little Velcro thing that you pop open and slide the sensor in and um, you know you just attach it to the wing using the adhesive and when you're not using it 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 lays flat it doesn't really affect anything and when you are you just slide the sensor in and it's good to go but yeah before that um, right nothing's ever perfect the first time right you have to design some stuff and learn from it so I had 3D printed like a bunch of cases for kind of the the round version of these sensors Mm. Um, and I was going to uh, magnetically mount them uh, to the wing so they would be easily removable. Um, so I would have a magnet inside uh, the wing, a magnet on the case, and you just sandwich it between the fabric mm-hmm. and um, it would stay up there. Well, the issue with that, right, is the magnetic field from the magnets messes up the measurements from the magnetometer and then you don't get any magnetometer data. So, um, Except just like straight down. Yeah, yeah, it was straight <laughs> in whatever, the direction the magnet's in, right? So um, by moving to this, you know, just adhesive kind of Velcro approach, um, it's a, a much cheaper and easier solution that's more functional, um, right? Um, it was really, really easy for me to, to manufacture these things out of a single piece of um, glider repair tape, right? I just drew out a stencil on paper and, uh, you know, laid out the tape on some wax paper above it and cut it out mm-hmm. and then folded it three times. And then I had this like perfect little pouch. Um, and it's, it's super simple. It's super cheap and effective. And oftentimes, right. The best solutions to, to problems like this, uh, are the, the simplest and <laughs> just glue it. Yeah, glue yeah, it exactly. <laughs> uh, so that worked really, really well. Um, so, you know, I'm on the race and, um, you know, I'm trying to use these sensors. And, well, you know, shit always doesn't go to plan, right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there was uh, some variables that I hadn't accounted for. And that's, you know, that's fine, right? This is uh, was meant to be a learning experience, uh, an experience where I could kind of test these things. And so uh, what ended up happening was I would put the sensors on the wing, get ready to, to take off. And whenever I would start up my motor and you know start going and get up in the air by the time i had gotten up in the air i had lost the data connection between the sensors and my phone and i knew immediately like what was happening right the ignition system of the uh the two-stroke motor on my back right it's it's got really sharp rise and fall times right at 2.4 gigahertz it it seems like it it, yeah it, it certainly seems like it right and it was throwing off a bunch of rf uh and right, these are Bluetooth low energy sensors. So um, I'm just swamping it. Entirely. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these yeah. guys don't put out you know much uh, energy at all. So um, the you know the RF from the ignition system like totally killed uh, the sensors. And so um, what we're doing right now, what I'm doing right now, is um, I have some parts on order uh, to where I can shield the ignition system. So I have a a new uh, spark plug boot, which is completely made of like metal it's completely shielded and then i have some um uh copper uh like braided copper sleeve sleeving that i can put over uh, the ignition lead itself Hmm. and then i'll solder that to the top of the uh the metal boot and so that should give me a real uh a nice shield uh to to kind of capture all that rf and kind of keep it uh within there um there's also like a, a ground wire for the coil that's how you like kill the ignition right mm-hmm. and so that's also going to have to be sleeved right because yep. it's connected to the coil it's going to irradiate stuff like crazy so um, i'm actually going to have to completely rebuild 
the throttle cable kind of assembly, right? It's got the the little uh, sleeved kind of bike brake cable in there that's the actual throttle cable, but then it's also got a couple wires going through there. So that'll all get sleeved, and then um, we'll test the sensors again. But I have seen them work on the ground, right? Um, I've gone down to the beach and um, kited the wing. Mm-hmm. So that's where you're just on the ground with a harness, no motor involved, and, um, you know, you fly it. And, like, I've had the sensors in there, had the app up on my phone, and, you know, it works brilliantly. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, there's there's always, you know, obstacles that you, you encounter, and you just have to push through them. And, uh, you know, this wasn't a major issue. And, uh, you know, the race the race went great. It was... It was it was really special, and I highly encourage, you know, anyone out that's out there, like, go out and try and do things that you think are, you know, completely batshit crazy, and like <laughs> that you don't think you're capable of, because you know you might surprise yourself, right? Um, I didn't think I was really, you know, that great of a, a paramotor pilot or anything like that. Um, I thought I was, you know, better than a beginner, but you know, didn't really know what I was capable of, right? And so um, by going out there and, you know, attempting the Icarus Trophy, um, you know, I really surprised myself. And I did things that, uh, you know, I didn't think I was capable of doing. I, I pushed myself and I grew, I think, a lot as a, uh, both a pilot, you know, and a person. Um, you know, there was really challenging moments. There were, you know, things that were, you know, difficult emotionally and like dealing with, with people and then also, you know, the the toughness of you know what I was doing physically you know taking off at, at six thousand feet uh, with zero wind and you know a, a full tank of gas and you know 20 30 pounds of gear on you um, it's really really hard you have to run your little butt off um, <laughs> and you know well, how heavy is the motor uh, the motor the new one that I have um, it's from a company called Air Conception and the dealer here uh, in the U S is uh, Aviator PPG. It weighs, uh, I believe it's uh, about 45 pounds dry. Uh, and then I've added like little self-inflating floaties and um, my reserve parachute. And so that increases the weight by probably another 10 pounds or so. So you're running with 100 pounds of junk stuff. On, yeah. At <laughs> least, at least, yeah. Um, and, you know. Uh, well, you got, the, you got a propeller helping you uh, run Yeah, it's not so much that you're running. Uh, it's more you're just trying to get your next foot out in front of you before you fall over. That's, <laughs> that's really the thing, right? The motor puts out all the power for you to run. Right. The trick is, um, you know, getting that you're wing. You're guiding it. Yeah, getting that wing up overhead, right? You're doing uh, what's called a forward launch. So the wing starts laid out behind you, um, and you grab some of the lines, and you hit the gas, and you start running forward. And if you don't keep the pressure on those front lines, mm-hmm. the wing won't come up. And that's that's really the key is is keeping the pressure on those lines and getting it to come up evenly uh, till it's nice up and overhead. And then you know, that's when you really start running and picking up the speed that you need to, to kind of take off. But that can be, uh, you know, at these higher altitudes, very, very difficult, um, especially with the, the added weight of, you know, full tank of gas and the gear and, you know, all the stuff that we need when we're doing these, these cross-country flights like, like we did. Sure. And then there was um, one other thing you, you had built right there's the the uh satellite module right uh so was that working so yeah so i've got two other boards one uh so yeah i've only gotten actually one of those manufactured so that was the um the adsb 
Um, and so basically what happened with that, right? I'm a one man show right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, my resources are, are kind of limited. So all of my time was, uh, kind of spent focusing on the, uh, the wing the little black box guy, yeah, that that went on the wing, uh, and the app and the SDK, right? I'm trying to kind of get to a, uh, you know, a minimum viable product that I can sell, and so um, all the focus has been kind of around, you know, building out the the demo uh, for paragliding, um, and then also kind of the ecosystem for the developers, the documentation, uh, the JavaScript SDK, all the other stuff that goes with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I do have a couple of other boards that are in the works, um, but uh, you know, this is, I think, my highest priority uh, product that I want to get out the door first is, is this uh, little black box here. So um, yeah, the ADSB, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, ADSB is automatic dependent surveillance or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know exactly, but basically it's a system, it's the next generation kind of um, air traffic control system or, or a piece of that. Um, and by, I think it's like 2020 or so, I don't know the exact date, um, uh, all airplanes within like certain airspaces are required to have uh, this ability to transmit their GPS location out uh, via radio. Um, okay, you can cut that. Uh, <laughs> we won't. Okay. Uh, His, uh, Trey's mic was falling. Yeah, I, was, I just watched it over like the last I was five a, minutes. A little, droop. a little droopy there. Um, so yeah, um, this next generation kind of air traffic control system, uh, the way it works is these planes uh, basically transmit their GPS location over you know an RF radio, and so anybody with uh, you know one of those USB SDR sticks right can pick up this information and there's lots of people doing that well um, you know I was trying to and I I'd been successful I just haven't finished the software uh, basically build a system that someone in a, a light aircraft could fly with uh, that, so they would be able to receive that information and then basically show a map of where these airplanes were on their cell phone oh, that's um, cool and so um, you know, you could do this with a, you know, a Raspberry Pi and one of those sticks, and you know, uh, but that's going to be really power hungry and it's going to be a much bigger, much more complicated solution. Uh, so I was able to find, um, there was a, a module ven vendor in Germany uh, that does a bunch of RF <laughs> kind of, you know, pre-certified module things. Uh, and they had a solution for um, one of the ADSB frequencies. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I've got a board. It's I've got a case for it and everything. Uh, it's it looks like a professional product. I, I hope. <laughs> um, you know, the case is you know I think it's IP67 or whatever rated, so it's it's waterproof and dustproof and all that kind of good stuff. So um, it's pretty rugged. Um, yeah, it's just a matter of kind of finishing up the the software for that. But uh, like I said, the priority is kind of getting one product out um, and then, you know, supporting that. And then, you know, uh, as I have the means to grow the business, um, you know, we'll um, push out more products and hopefully, uh, you know, help people out. Um, that's really the goal is to, um, you know, make things uh, safer and more fun. And, you know, one of the ways you can do that is by, um, you know, gathering data, you know, in the event that something bad happens, right? And that's kind of... Uh, one of the focuses for this is to um, help these wing manufacturers and uh, people that create equipment for 
you know, really anything. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be paragliding, uh, but it, enable them to make their, their products, you know, safer and, uh, you know, higher performance by gathering data in ways that they haven't been able to do before. Cool. Awesome. And so can we share pictures and stuff like that? Oh, yeah, blog? absolutely. So, um, yeah, I've got lots of pictures of, of these guys. Um, I actually, uh, when I flew my last flight into the finish line uh, of the Icarus Trophy, I was wearing the all your base or belong to us macrofab t-shirt. So <laughs> awesome. I'll, I'll have to send you guys some pictures of uh, yeah me sipping on some champagne at the finish line with the uh, the macrofab shirt. Oh, cool. Yeah, we'll totally put that all over the blog. <laughs> so so I, I got two things for you real quick. Sure, sure. Um, so if somebody wants to learn more mm -hmm. about this, is yep. there some information that they can go check out? Sure, absolutely. So um, actually... You know what? Screw it. Let's do it. Um, so we're going to actually launch the new TradeGerman.com website today. Is it TradeGerman.com? On the MacroFab podcast. Yeah, oh. you can go to uh, TradeGerman.com, T-R-E-Y-G-E-R-M-A-N.com. That's an awesome URL. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, that's kind of like my personal blog. Uh, so I'm posting updates kind of um, uh on what's happened during the race, it was very difficult for me to do anything but kind of fly the race and keep myself and safe and keep my crew, you know, kind of together and all that. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've got lots and lots of media. I've actually got like half a terabyte of videos and pictures just to sift through and like lots of writing to do to put up on the blog. But then also, yeah, information about the sensors and, and kind of uh, my efforts there will... Uh, they'll start to come up on, on uh, yeah, my personal blog, and then we've also got uh, a website in the works for the company. Um, that should be coming in the next month or two as I start kind of rolling some more of this stuff out uh, and getting closer to uh, an actual product launch. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Great. So last question. Yeah. You going to do the race again? Oh, absolutely. Um, this race was, uh, you know, I think, one of you know those those special experiences in your life that you'll never forget um you know the friends that i made uh with the other pilots and uh i mean just everything that happened um I, I, there's no way I, I wouldn't do it again um you know there was probably uh you know some of the best flights of my life and also some of the worst flights of my life in terms of you know <laughs> scary stuff and things that you know was new to me or that i i wasn't expecting and so you know, I think it's important, um, you know, to continue to push yourself, right? Um, if you just, like, kind of sit there and, you know, just live, you know, the normal life that, you know, is not the American dream or whatever, you know, just going into your corporate job, you know, doing your 8 to 5 and, uh, you know, all that kind of mundane stuff, like, what's the point? You're not living, right? Um, you really have to get out there and, and chase after your dreams and passions and, you know, sometimes you're going to do things that are uncomfortable or scary, but, um, you know, doing those things and pushing through them, um, you know, you learn a lot and I think it makes you a lot better, uh, person. So, yeah, that was probably a little more than you wanted, but no, that's fine. <laughs> no, that's awesome. <laughs> we got a little chase little, your dreams, a little philosophical for once on, on the map. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, that's, that's super awesome, man. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I think thank that's you. great. Um, so we're going to skip the rest of the topics here. <laughs> and go right just to LRFO. All Skip all of them. <laughs> um, so, no, because just what Trey had to say was very interesting. So there's no reason to... Right on to RFO. Yeah. Um, so you found this earlier this week. 
It's called the Scaryak. That, okay? yeah. mm-hmm. So it's like a Variac, but scary, I guess, right? That's so it controls, it controls AC current yep. and voltage by using water and two pieces of copper and a plastic tub. And as you move the copper closer, it reduces the resistance and yep. yeah, more power. So this guy basically wanted a Variac to control like his uh, stick welder. Yeah, he, he made, made his a own homemade stick welder. Homemade stick welder. Sounds safe. With, <laughs> sounds a, with a magneto from a microwave, I think is what it was. Well, yeah, I think I think he rewound uh, one of the tra- or two of the transformers from uh, a microwave. Okay, and it's like you know you have the you have the the big spark uh, uh, coil, and I think he put like two turns on the <laughs> on the backside. You know, something just all current. Um, yeah, and his problem was he couldn't find a because you know he built his own homemade stick welder. And so he wanted a cheap solution to control it. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't get a Variac that could do like 40 amps at 220 volts. Um, so he made his own with a Tupperware container. <laughs> and it's made of Tupperware and PVC. Yeah, yeah. Like the control handle is just this, it's, this it's, he red paint, PVC yeah, handle. Yeah, he painted it red for warning. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> this might be hot. You might not want to touch it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the guy's name's uh, Grant. Thompson, he's got this really cool YouTube channel. Um, I think he, he his code name is like or code uh, yeah code name is the King of Random. Hmm. Um, so this is the only thing I've seen on his channel so far, but it looks pretty interesting. His production values are insane. Are they? For his video, yeah, yeah, production values, and then he shows you. I mean, the Scariac is an absolutely a very apt name for yeah. for what's going on there. I mean, that is some psycho stuff. And it's just a big resistor, right? Like, yeah. Well, well it's, it's, so, it's so he has distilled he has, water. He, yeah. It's distilled water with a teaspoon of lye in it. Okay. So his electrolyte. Yeah. Basically, electrolyte. he's making a liquid resistor. Yeah. Uh, and by increasing the distance, sure, you increase the resistance. This reminds me of using like. Um, because uh, I've done this before, is use like enamel wire and then dunking the enamel wire into a bucket mm-hmm. to cool the enamel wire off to use that as a like a low ohm resistor. Mm-hmm. Done that before. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Yeah. The, the similar idea, except that he's actually passing the current through the water. You're using the water as a coolant. Coolant, yeah. 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 Uh, it's just. Go watch it on YouTube. <laughs> it's scary. It is absolutely scary. He does, like he does wear PPE or so, right? while, while using it. So it's two twenty volts. But what's I mean? What's the open circuit output on the other side of it? Uh, where's is so is this oh, resistor well, on the primary or secondary side? I mean, if if, if you're stick welding, it's going to be like one volt. Well, yeah, once the yeah, but like the starting voltage right before you. Two. I, th- I think it was two twenty. Yeah. Yeah, just so you can, really you can that start high? that, uh, the, so you can start the arc. Right, right. And then it then it drops, right, know, pretty right. much immediately. Huh. Yeah, but still, I mean, that much juice flowing through, it's just, I don't know, it's scary. I mean, the current, <laughs> oh, its name, the current, right, isn't the scary part to me as a human, right? It's it's the you know the voltage, right? And well, the current is what kills, yeah, right? Kills, right, but you need hurts. the voltage to exactly. go through your skin. Yeah, exactly. So if the voltage isn't high enough, right? It's uh, you know it's not a concern right from a, a safety perspective. Eh. I'm pretty sure if you stuck both your hands in this tub, you would <laughs> yeah, die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yes. it's one of those things. Yes, say you had a bare a bare copper wire that was like zero gauge, 
and yeah. it had 50 amps going through it in one volt, I still wouldn't touch it. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, that's like, not it, thing at all. It's, I think it's still kind of that mentality. It probably wouldn't hurt you. No, it wouldn't. No. no I it, mean, as long as you had dry skin, right, you'd be fine. But it's, but it's Houston. We never have dry skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but it's a it's liquid, right, so you right. get wet no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. <laughs> it's, it's automatic game over. Yeah, yeah. No, that, <laughs> that would not be good. I think um, he just needs to get a variac. Yeah, Scary yeah. needs a variac. So, so Steven, <laughs> I've got an extra one. I think. Yeah. So you, Steven's got a variac. I've seen it before. Yeah. But does it handle like how much amperage can you pump through that thing? It's five hundred watt. And it's meant for 120, so not much. Five yeah. amps max, if yeah. that. Yeah, if that. So what he needs to get is one of those big ganged, like three phase variacs, and just parallel all of them. Then he'd be he'd be gold. The variac yeah. from the from the intro of Back to the Future One. Yeah. You know when he's turning oh, up yeah. the amplifier mm-hmm. with, with the, the six wall foot speaker? of speakers. Yeah, yeah. yeah that now, one. I'll put it yeah. this way: if he could buy one of those, he could buy a stick welder. That's true. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> And hence the point of why the scary act even Someone exists. Someone sponsor this guy and get him a real welder. <laughs> <laughs> or a member, membership at a hackerspace or something. All right, so topic two. Um, it, this was found on the Amp Hour subreddit. Um, so I'm kind of pilfering from them. <laughs> um, it, the title of the article is, Your brilliant Kickstarter idea could be on sale in China before you even deliver it. Hmm. Um, so it's a story about this guy who made a... I didn't know this existed, but it's a pretty cool idea, I guess. Um, it's a selfie stick that's built into an iPhone case. It's like all collapsed up, and so you basically press a button, and it mm-hmm. goes, Froomp, and the stick pops out of it. It mm-hmm. actually makes that noise, right? Yes. It goes, <laughs> um, the Chinese ones don't, though. That's oh. how you can tell. Oh, that's how you can mm, tell the counterfeits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, like, before his Kickstarter was even funded... <laughs> And over, there was already copycats on AliExpress that you could buy. I'd believe it. In one week. Yep. Was it open? Was it open hardware? No. Nope. So they just we, looked at it in its mechanical design. They took probably a couple days to figure out how to make it, it work off. and yeah. and manufactured it. Sure. Um, so this article covers a lot of stuff like, um, like IP and all those mm-hmm. boring stuff. You can read it if you want to. Um, basically, it says. Or it basically what we've been figuring out over the past couple of years is anything can be copied and will be copied if it's good enough, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. It doesn't even have to be good enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some there's right. Copies this is a this is a selfie iPhone case. Yeah, yeah. Right. by definition, it is not, it is not, not good, good enough. enough. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, I, it's almost at the point where. Yeah, this guy, this guy who commented on the article had a really mm-hmm. good idea. It's like, new prototyping technique. Mm-hmm. Introduce a new idea on Kickstarter. Wait till the knockoff comes off on AliExpress. Buy out the clone mm-hmm. and just sell that. So you don't have to do any development yourself. It's you just have to plan. do a mock-up. It's wow. a good plan. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a free engineering. Free just engineering. Absolutely free. Engineering. Clearly, I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there, there was another thing in there. It's like when your product gets to a certain complexity, it makes it really hard to copy without the actual device. And so mm-hmm. you would be okay there. So right. high-end electronics. like selfie, High-end, you know, self-balancing, illuminating selfie sticks. Yeah. I mean, throw a gyroscope on the end so it stabilizes the phone or something yeah. like that. I mean, yeah. I'm actually surprised no one's come up with a... Like 
pocketable quadcopter that you can slap your phone in and kind of like toss it out there, and so you can take a group photo from a quadcopter. Uh, Million dollar idea right there, guys. There's going to be clones next week. The next week of that idea done. <laughs> yeah. well, like, uh, and they listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, two, I think it was like a, about two years ago for one of these uh, design competitions that Intel put on. Like the winner from that was basically like a little drone you could wear on your wrist. And then it would like you could push the button and it would pop open and the four arms would come out and it would fly and it had a little camera to take a picture of you and then come back. There we go. Uh, but, you know, here we are like two years later and, you know, it, it hasn't really happened, right? It's, <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. It, yeah, I mean, from a, a marketing perspective, it's an absolutely great Actually, product idea. But uh, to a, get yeah. something small enough that is, you know, usable enough and has the battery life... Um, you know, it, it's it's a very very difficult thing to do, oh, yeah, and I think rough. a lot of this stuff, right, is is due to battery technology. Yeah, um, actually, I think there was a Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something like that that actually tried to do that idea. Yeah, and they failed. Yeah, I think they couldn't produce. I'll I'll find it and put it in the description. Something like that would be pricey. Yeah, just yeah. inherently. It was just they couldn't get the software done fast enough. Hmm. Oh, so you. When you say failed, did they get funded and then didn't deliver? Correct. Oh, uh, that's worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That is Only, I don't know why people go to a Kickstarter when they don't have, like, I, I, I get the point, right? It's to raise money so they can fund their idea, but, like, you need to know it's feasible, right? It, and it's a lot better to go, you know, into a Kickstarter campaign with, you know, an actual ready to go tested product um, that you know is functional. You know, if you need the money to do like the, you know, the Bluetooth certification or the FCC certification or, or whatever, that's a great use, I think, for Kickstarter funds. Yep, but sure. if you're going to use it to pay rent for the next six months while you continue to develop this idea to a production level, like, you know, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Welcome Sorry. Yeah. Legal battles. Yeah. 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 And, and, and uh, you know, I think. As crowdfunding grows, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, we just the community learns their lesson sure. in a way, uh, and and you no, know, no, they in, never in, do. Well, in five, there's, there's always five people to ten years. Try to take I think we will. Yep. We're gonna we're gonna get there. And you know, originally Kickstarter didn't require you to have a prototype of your thing right. before. Now you have to have a functional model. Yep. Uh, and 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 so you know those those simple rules help out. Well, it's all uh, crowd supply is takes a step further it's basically your device has to be ready for manufacturing before you can do a crowd supply gotcha yeah yeah right right and 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 there's something there's something inherently good about having to put your money up front you have skin in the game you have something that you've poured yourself into and and like trey was saying you're now getting the money to go to production to to pass certifications to do that kind of thing. The things it really needs to go towards. Yes. Right. And can potentially Otherwise cost how are a you going to, you know, fulfill all these, you know, orders that you've got to fill now, right? Right. They they paid for this stuff. Part of that money has to go to actually manufacturing your well, product. Well, development costs a lot of money. Sure. Or, or well, it can cost a lot of money. Um, and so just having people randomly give it to you is not a guarantee that you have an outcome. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. My Neat. only development cost is <laughs> yeah. My only development cost is is rent and food to keep me alive. Yeah, it's <laughs> a convenient thing. Yeah, that's, that's pretty nice. And so, speaking of China, the next RFO is that's not really an RFO, uh, I guess. Um, it's just this article. 
not really an article either. It's a tour <laughs> of a wire bonding facility in China, uh, Shenzhen, to be exact. Um, it was really cool actually seeing like the machines that actually bond dyes to the packages and that kind of stuff. And it, this factory also did the uh, glop tops that's on PCBs, where mm -hmm. they actually put they basically super glue the dye oh, onto yeah. the PCB and then bond directly to the board. And then epoxy over. Wait, what's what's the name for that? Chip on, not chip on board. I think uh, it's chip on board. Yeah, chip on board. But but uh, oh, I was thinking flip chip. Uh, it is chip on board. Yeah. And I was thinking flip chip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's really cool. Except when you look at some of the pictures, um, <laughs> some of the factory workers are wearing wireless ESD straps. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Now to be fair, they're like you know leaning on an ESD mat that's hopefully grounded. And so they're, you know, they're not going to be ESD staticky, but it's just really staticky. funny. <laughs> um, I just think it's really funny that they're wearing a a completely bogus product. <laughs> well, I, I use wireless ESD straps all the time. You see mine? I'm wearing it right now. Oh, yeah. It's also invisible. It's, yeah. <laughs> hey, we live in Houston. The humidity does it for me, right? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, that was one of the big things when I worked at TI, right? They, they hammer into you like... ESD strap, ESD strap, ESD strap. Oh, yeah. like, there's yearly trainings on this kind of stuff, and that was one of the things that I was never, like, never really did much of. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, I never, like, burned out stuff, or, like, it never really was an issue, right? Their concern is that, you know, by frying chips or things like that, right, especially if you're debugging things, you can create problems for yourself that you don't really know that you have. Exactly. You'll um, be chasing your uh, tail all day. Exactly, exactly. But, um, yeah, down here in Texas, it's... Even in the wintertime, it doesn't doesn't really get bad here. Right? Yeah. Up north, if you've ever worked on electronics, like, ooh. Yeah, it's like when people... Every doorknob. Yeah, people complain about ESD all the time, and I never had a problem at all mm -hmm. at my home shop. It's just, you know, your house is 50% humidity, always. Mm -hmm. and, like, this just, <laughs> and outside is 98? 98%, yeah. Just wall of water when you walk outside. That's right. I I have... I have knowingly destroyed an ESD chip, or ESD destroyed a chip once. Uh, and we actually, it was at a previous job, and we, we took the top off the chip and actually looked at it. Oh, yeah. And lo and behold, there was all that, like, looks like acne, you know, yep. pock marks all over the die. Uh, and we we're like, wow, this, it can happen. Oh, yeah, but absolutely. But in, you know, in a decade, I've done it once to one chip, you know, so... Um, but but there was actually a time I was up in um, I was working up in Nevada doing some some engineering up there and we were uh, gosh it was like six percent humidity and we were we were working on this system that had a whole bunch of like module cards that went into this big rack and stuff uh, and just putting an SD card in to monitor data we would shock the device enough for it to reset. Uh, we were actually hitting wow. enough lines to make the processor, which wasn't even the card we were putting the SD in, mm -hmm. it would it would lift the ground high enough to reset the whole device. Wow. So yeah, Houston, it's not one thing, but elsewhere, it's yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah, big deal. And it's different if right you're working on you know your own stuff, or if you've got a customer's board, or you're doing production work. Right? There's, I, I think, different levels of. Work that we do that require different kinds of precautions. Oh, yeah. And, uh, at Macrofab, we do. Um, heel straps yep. and yeah. wrist straps that you plug into your bench yep. and the benches are grounded. Everything's grounded. Yep. <laughs> well, And we're doing 
uh, dual heel straps, one, yeah. for, one for each foot. Uh, so, so here's actually a good question for you guys, both being engineers. When is a board considered safe? When can you handle it? Oh, you mean without ESD protection? Without ESD protection, because, I mean, shoot, I mean, we've been handling boards our whole life. Sure, you know, sure. But w- when, when do you consider it safe? I would say once the board is um, fully assembled, mm-hmm. and as long as it's been designed with ESD in mind, mm-hmm. so you have proper protection on IO lines, like from connectors and stuff, yeah, yeah. you should be able to handle it relatively safely i would still touching the points that are intended to be touched yes i would still try to ground yourself like touch you know a bench that's that's grounded or touch like a piece of conduit that's on the wall yep just to kind of make sure you're not charged up but i'm always charged up you always charged up (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) and always try to grab the board by the edge if you can yeah these kind of things yeah and and i've 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 heard that a lot where it's just if the board's fully assembled, in general, you can sort of consider it I'll put, to be safe. I'll put it this way. Having built computers almost all my life, I've never worn a wrist strap building a computer. Yep. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that can be destroyed on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, well, usually when you're working on a computer, you're in the chassis of it. And your arms are touching the edges touched, of the case. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no way to build up anything. But I could see if you're... Up living up north in the winter and it's like zero percent humidity on carpet yep. you could probably kill something pretty easily no oh, yeah. very easily we just don't have to deal with that yeah just sucks to go outside here yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you, they say houston is what the energy capital of the world i think it's the air conditioning capital of the world oh well yeah absolutely other than like dubai or something like that that's probably more <laughs> but we've definitely got it bad you know the humidity here is just oh it's out of control that's that's the big thing like heat you know if you go out to el paso or something like that it's manageable yeah. if you're in houston with the 80 to 100 percent humidity oh it's unreal well that's the thing is out in el paso and stuff you can use a swamp cooler mm-hmm. which are very effective at cooling down localized air yep you can't that does not work in Houston. It just mixes. It things. will not. The water will not evaporate. Yeah. <laughs> no, evaporative it's cooling just is not possible. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how less efficient, you know, because a lot of buildings still use evaporative cooling here. Uh, but how less efficient it is here versus, you know, like the desert or something like that. Oh, by far, I would think. I'd, I'd just be curious to know the numbers, like how many percent, you know, less efficient or more efficient it is out there. Yeah, just taking a gut feel. I bet you it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 50, 60% or yeah. even higher? Oh, well, lower. <laughs> you mean 50% lower efficiency yeah, than yeah, somewhere yeah. else? Yeah. yeah, probably. I That would not surprise me in the slightest. We need some type of mechanical engineer, heat transfer guy to... Yeah, calculate the stuff out. Do the numbers for us. <laughs> we need to find one. This actually was my idea for at Macrofab, because um, we have air conditioners at the fab, but... The warehouse that we're currently in is not really well insulated, so it heats up quite a bit. I think one time it got up to like, you know, mid high 80s um, when it was like over 100 outside. Mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking, like, what if we just took a hose and put it on the roof and just let water out? Like, everyone in California is like, no, right now. <laughs> but um, here in Houston, we've been like flooded almost every other week during the summer. <laughs> we just pumped the Gulf water up. Yeah. On, on the roof. And just cool the roof down with water. 
And I bet you that would have been pretty cost effective. Yeah, maybe. It'd be a crazy experiment. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're moving next week. Like, literally on Wednesday next week, we're moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so gonna if be we're going to try to do the podcast next Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully we can get it done. And you guys think you'll be up and running Monday of the next week? or That's the plan. Uh, no, it's, we don't think we will. We we have to be. We have to be. I was going to say, because I've got an order coming through here pretty soon. <laughs> no, no, Finishing no, no, up yeah. some contract work that I need to push through. So We, we uh, will absolutely be up and running. We will not have uh, a lot of downtime. Good no. answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and with that, uh, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast for this week. I'm your guest, Trey German. And we were your hosts, Parker Dolan. And Stephen Craig. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Later, guys. Take it easy. That was the best outro we've ever done. Thank you, Trey. No problem. (laughs) 